0: Well, I'm happy to welcome you as we gather again for worship as the Christ Journey family this Sunday after Resurrection Sunday. Last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and so for everyone who joined us on that day, God bless you, and then those who are welcoming um, others to join us on this Sunday, we're so excited to have you with us today. Kendall Campus, Church Online, everyone who was a part of our experience, we're welcoming you today with God's blessing, and I'm telling you, what an incredible sense of energy and excitement and joy was ours last week. And then as we gathered to lay our burdens down, including our COVID burdens down, and then be raised to new hope, we welcome you in that spirit today. And, uh, and thank God that you have chosen to become a part of us. And I'm praying that, that this message, would have a significant application in your life and find that welcome. Now, speaking of this message, you know how sometimes you can say a thing and then find out that what you thought you said isn't what was heard? That the same words can be heard in different ways depending on the filter through which people are listening. Well, we're calling this series, It's All About the People, and it occurs to me that that is a phrase that can at the same time be understood as boring, tell you why, or offensive, to tell you why, And yet, neither of those is what we really want to talk about today. On one hand, think about this with me, in a consumer culture as narcissistic as ours, to say it's all about the people is like to say, duh, isn't everything? I mean, that's how culture is built. We've come to take that for granted, that that's just a given, that wherever we go, it's going to be all about us, right? Consumers rule. Ho-hum, yawn, boring, tell me something. And I don't know. It's all about the people? No. Tell me it's all about the people, but it's all about me. Because be sure you need to light me up in the process. It's all about the people. Ego-driven marketing in a consumer culture makes that a given, which means that that's not news at all. That's boring. Don't pay attention to that. Yet at the same time, say the very same statement, it's all about the people, in a Christ-centered environment— where we are gathering to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, not to get what I want when I want it, but we're asking God's Spirit to focus us beyond ourselves on His righteousness and not what I want. And guess what? That same statement has become offensive. For some people, you may have already snagged there. It's all about the people? I don't think so. I mean, I lived that way for a while. Some of us could say that. We lived that way for a while, and it's a trap. To say it's all about me, it's a trap. And some of us who come out of codependent environments to say it's all about the people means, oh yeah, it's all about what people say about me. It's all about what people think about me. It's all about what people require of me. And that all sounds just really tiring. That's like offensive, right? Or... Like some of us, perhaps you, you're thinking, you know, I was in a relationship once with somebody who thought it was all about them. That didn't have such a happy ending. Like I saw this uh, sign above a woman's photograph. It said, uh, I finally met Mr. Right. I just didn't know his first name was Always. (laughs) Ladies, you know that door swings both ways. You know, guys, we know that's true, right? Um, So, when we say, it's all about the people, then we want to know, what, which people? When do I get to be the people? Now, when can it be all about me? So, I'm just telling you that to say, it's all about the people, is one of those statements that many of us have scars from. Somewhere in our life, a train wreck that is either ego-driven or that was codependent, dependent, and uh, made a, a, a life less than under the heading it's all about the people. And to those of us who are gathering today, who are asking God to lift us above ego-driven narcissism in a culture that's seeping with it, the statement can be offensive, off putting So how do we mean it to be understood? That's the question. Or better, how would God have us understand that statement? And for the answer to that question, I'm turning to the New Testament letter of 1 John. Now there's a sense in which every book of the Bible fits the statement, it's all about the people. The entire story of the Old Testament about the Jewish people um, is a story about us, too. Like the rabbi said, you know, why did God choose the Jews? Well, Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. And so their story, we can find ourselves in it. But if any letter of the New Testament jumps out to me as a context for answering this question, what does it mean by all about the people? It's First John. Why? Well, it was written by one of the 12, John, who Jesus nicknamed with his brother, Sons of Thunder. Why did he do that? Probably because one day after they had come through a village that rejected Jesus, said they didn't want anything to do with him, John said, hey, Lord, why don't we just call fire down from heaven and burn up the village? It's like turn or burn evangelistic method. Talk about offensive. But this is the guy that wrote this letter. By the way, his mother had asked Jesus privately if he and James could be occupying the two top spots in the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom that Jesus was establishing. The other 10 guys weren't so excited when they heard about that one. But that's the John that's writing the letter that we're going to be journeying with this month. This is the same John who on Sunday morning after Mary had told them that Jesus was not at the tomb then John races Simon Peter to see who's going to get to the tomb first. Did you know there was a foot race to get to the tomb on Sunday morning there was. And John got there first but then Peter got in the door first. This is the John that wrote this letter. Easter Sunday John. By the time he wrote this letter many years had passed. 60 most likely the scholars tell us. Um 60 years from the time that he personally ate fish on the seashore with Jesus following the resurrection. Now, he's been through a lot in his life. He's already been on the Isle of Patmos in exile, and now he's returned to Ephesus where he lives and where he's teaching in his senior, senior years, and Ephesus at the time is a pagan city. I mean, it is oozing with idolatry of all kinds and with immorality, and uh, it was there that he writes his letters and the gospel of John, which tells us right away that the gospel never comes to us in a vacuum. The gospel comes in a context And in Ephesus, the cultural context at the end of the first century, which is when this was written, a worldview known as Gnosticism was rising as the popular, trending brand view, uh, brand of the day. Worldview called Gnosticism, Uh, and one of the bottom-line teachings in that worldview is that matter is evil. All matter is evil. What does that mean? So God will have no direct contact with it. Well, what does that mean? Therefore, Jesus could not have been God in the flesh because the true God would not have any contact with matter directly. That Jesus couldn't be God incarnate. Now remember, this is 60 years after the resurrection where this John is writing a letter about his experience with that Jesus and this teaching was already starting to make itself go, make make its rounds. In other words, Jesus may have been a manifestation but not the real personality or the real body in truth. And so, understanding the context helps us understand the text. Now, why does that matter? Because in this series, it's all about the people, means it's all about what the people believe. It's all about what's going on in the culture of the people. It's all about the problems that they face in their real lives. And that's where this was written from, and that's where it's going to find its application into our lives. At the time that John wrote it, it's believed that he was the only one of the 12 disciples that was still alive. Now, I say all of that so that I can say this. If any one of the 12 disciples knows about people, it's John. He knows how much God loves people. He knows how Jesus Christ came as a person to give himself for the people because he loves the people. He knows how people like us get ourselves into problems that we can't always get ourselves easily out of. He knows, but he also knows that God has amazing plans for his people and that he has a future that he wants to that he desires through his people to make a difference in, in our world. In his world then in Ephesus, in our world right here in Miami, and wherever you're making your connection with us. And that's going to show up in the letter. Also about how God answers prayer. And how we can pray so as to get his will done in the world. And then how we also stay true to one another in the journey together. How we love one another, how we receive love from each other, and then how we help each other stay true and on course in what can oftentimes be a taffy pull or a chaotic, confusing tug of war in a culture that isn't aligning to the same direction of Jesus. And this is what this letter is about. And then one of the full bottom line in his letter, God wants people to know, we're going to talk about this next week, God wants you to know that you know that you have eternal life. How can you do that? Well, that's next week, but it's right here. Um, So the the, the letter of 1 John is all about that. It's all about the people, what the people believe, what problems the people are facing, and then how we move with him into a brighter future. And John follows up on his Easter testimony today, Last Sunday we saw how we were invited into the joy of Jesus that he saw, he heard, he felt, he held, he studied. All of that has a context because it wasn't believed that Jesus was real. But John said, oh no, he was real and I was there and now today, where does he take us next? Into the most vexing problem that every one of us ever face for every day of our life. Before Star Wars introduced the dark side of the force, John wrote this toward the end of the first century. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we claim that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. And if we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. And if we claim that we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar and his truth has no place in our lives. Okay, time out. Welcome to John's version of the people's court. You ever seen this show? It's a reality TV show. It's been on TV 30 years now and its purpose, according to its website, is this, quote, dispense justice and provide legal insight in the courtroom where justice and reality collide, close quote. In 1 John chapter 1, the apostle John takes us into the place where justice and reality collide in our lives. And guess who John puts on the stand first? Don't be offended by this. You. (laughs) He puts everybody. John says, I would like everybody to take the stand right now. And in his opening statement, he says basically this, every one of us know what it means to live in the dark. We have personal experience from our own life choices of what it means to walk in darkness where we deceive ourselves about our own needs. I don't need that. About our own guilt, that's not my fault. And, about, and then denial, we tend to live in denial, we call it rationalization, but we tend to live in denial claiming that we don't have that problem. That's not my problem. <laughs> That's somebody else's problem. And then we start filling in the blanks on the problem that he's talking about. Now, what is the problem that he's talking about? In two words, it's human sin. Human sin. According to John, our biggest problem, my biggest problem, is human sin. Pastors are not exempt. So I'm not asking at this point if you agree or not, I'm just telling you what John has written. Uh, And the reason I'm telling you is because sin is not a word that we use much in our culture. Unless you attend places like this. You know, you don't hear the word used a lot. And yet, listen to this, we experience the concept every day. Every day we hear about the concept in the news. Every day we experience the concept in life. What's the concept? Well, the word that was translated sin actually literally means this, missing the target. It's like there's a bullseye in the middle of the target and somebody missed it. And the context is in a moral setting or in an ethical uh, expectation, a moral action. It's a moral lapse or an ethical failure. And I'm telling you, our news reports are about this, social media is all about this. Whenever somebody is being aha or gotcha on somebody else, it's talking about what this word means. And it fits a lot of human attitudes and behaviors. Like what? Well, let me just give you a quick rundown. A litany of humanities in humanities. What could they be? Well, promising one thing and doing another. That ever happen to you? You ever do it to somebody? Behaving one way in front of a person's face and another way when they're not around. Misrepresenting the truth. Backstabbing. Slander. Hurting others with words. Stealing. Taking something that doesn't belong to you. Fraud. Embezzlement, identity theft, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, drug and substance abuse, disrespecting authority, violence. What else? You see these on the news all the time, right? Hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy, sexual impurity, sexual overindulgence, sexual perversion, sexual inappropriate jealousy, dissension, witchcraft, drunkenness, adultery, cheating, greed, hatred. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And all of these words in this dark catalog of human misery, John categorizes under the word, missing the target. So said, this is our most vexing and personal problem. And all of these listings, and by the way, where did John get that? He got it from Jesus. He got it from Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus says about human beings when it comes to lists like that and behaviors like that and lives like mine and yours, he says that it's a whole lot easier to see the lapses and failures in others than it is in ourselves. And here's how Jesus said that. He said, you know, you really ought to first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you could see more clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, you'll find it more helpful to face your own need first. And then you'll be able to help others if you face your own need first. So our tendency, though, is not, not to face it, not to see it, And John says that's part of the problem. That's what John is talking about. We tend to be in the dark when it comes to that. And then when the light shines, we tend to go into denial or then self-deceit. You know, we kind of hide. And this is the good thing about you being here today or you checking us out today. Because I'm probably not talking about you. I'm probably talking about somebody you know. And somebody maybe that you've already thought about. And you've thought, oh man, if they were only here. I wish they could be here to hear this because this is all about them today. Isn't that how we are? And this is what John is saying, that that's part of our problem. It's all about us. And... Uh, And then look what John does immediately. This is so cool because he outs the problem and then he runs immediately to what the solution is. He takes us to Jesus whose blood is more than able to cleanse our sin and restore our fellowship with God and with each other. Chapter one, verse seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, Purifies us from all sin. Verse 9 if we confess our sins, if we tell the truth about our sins, then He's faithful and just, He can be trusted, and He will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is incredible. Immediately John takes us to the solution, and then, you know what, he says, and even if you've been in denial about this, and you've been acting like you don't do it, but then it suddenly dawns on you, oh, it is me, I did do that. Look at what chapter 2 says, verse 1. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He's on our side. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, And he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Look what God can do when he takes on a human body. God's got us more than covered. And that's what John, of the 12, who was growing in grace, wants us to know. In the people's court, before God, our judge has already assigned us the highest quality advocate that anyone could ever have. And that advocate has also, in our defense, also paid in full every penalty that could be assigned to every misbehaving sin that human beings could ever commit and not only cleanse us, but it says purify. That's a word that means go on the inside. So it's one thing to clean up the outside. It's another thing to go on the inside. And that's what Jesus can do, John says. He does a deep cleansing and he starts making things right on the inside of us when they've gone wrong. More about that in a moment. But you know, all that John is saying is that God makes the people's problem his business. I'm so glad he does. <laughs> That's what took Jesus to the cross and then up from the grave, and then on this day brought us to this text so that somebody here could hear the Lord say, this is about you. This is in the same way that Yahweh God said to Moses, I have heard my people's cries and I have come down so that I might set them free from their captivity and bring them into the land of promise. That's what John is saying. God has come in Christ to do for you, for the people, for everybody who finds themselves captive to missing the target and and then take us into freedom in overcoming. So how can it happen for you? I'm going to give you three words. The first one is this. First, you got to face it. This is what John says. You got to own it. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. It's not my mom. It's not my dad. It's not my boss. It's not the circumstance. It's me. It's me. I got to own it. I got to say, yep, I got a part in this. To confess means to agree. So I'm going to agree with God and say it this way. You can turn it into a prayer. Lord, I have a problem. I don't like to admit it. That's pretty honest, right? I have a problem. I don't like to admit it. But I'm not going to shut my eyes to it today. I need you. I need your forgiveness. And I need help. So you're stepping into the light, out of the dark, and challenging it with your truth about your life. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And the person that we most deceive first is ourselves. But John says... Though this is very much part of the people's problem, that we tangle ourselves up in lies and even the ones we keep telling ourselves, that God is big enough and will reach into the problem when we face it. Here's the second word. First, face it. Second, next, grace it grace it. John takes us to Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, our Savior, our advocate, the one who is before the Father on our defense, God's solution to your sin problem. And he says, here's the gift God has for you. It's called forgiveness. Forgiveness. He cleanses us from sin. That's on the outside. And then he goes on the inside by his spirit to purify us from unrighteousness. To grace your problems means that you do, that you trust God, and what he has done in Christ, that it is more than adequate to receive forgiveness by faith. That's where it begins. And thanksgiving is the voice of faith. So we can turn this into a prayer as well. You could simply say this, thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has taken away all the sins of my world, that you don't bear them anymore. You can make that your prayer right now. Thank you, Lord, that you've lifted the burden from me, That as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my sin from me. So by grace, through faith, we declare our receiving of the gift. And then the third step, face it, grace it, then replace it. Replace it with what? Love. We learn how to love. We bring the core love of our life that defines all that we do and turn it Godward, let the love of the Father be in you fully. And as Christ comes alive in us, then what we discover is that his spirit starts leading us to start addressing old habits that maybe didn't used to matter to us, but now we're starting to be sensitive to them. And those selfish patterns with new life in Christ. And so we let the love of God start working a work in us on the inside. You know what, if you walk into a room, say you walk into my house, and you look up and you see spider webs in the chandelier, what does that tell you? Got this little light fixture, got little spider webs in it, what does that tell you? You know two things right away. A spider has been there, and Pastor Bill hasn't cleaned for a while, right? That's the two things you know automatically. A spider has been there, and it have not cleaned for a while, um, That is a metaphor for what happens in a believer's life. When sins show up, those multiple misbehaviors of attitude and action in our lives, they're like webs that are there because the spider has been present. The spider, according to Scripture, is fallen human nature, a sinful human nature. John calls it the flesh our fallen nature apart from God. And apart from God, we're always spinning something to hide and make ourselves feel better, look better than what is true. And that's where all the list of the misbehaviors that I mentioned earlier are all wrapped around this spider because they come in my life, they come from my fallen sinful nature. They come the same place in your life from yours. Evidence of the spider So when they show up, when these behaviors show up in your life, it's supposed to let you know, oops, a spider's been on the loose. And second, maybe it's time to get clean. And that's what John is writing about. Every person in Adam's race since the original sin in the garden has had to deal with this sinful nature, with the lower fallen nature. And that's what John is writing about in the second half of the statement where he says, not only can you be cleansed. Forgiven of sin, but purified from unrighteousness. He goes inside and he picks up the theme again in chapter 2, verse 15. This is what he says Do not love the world. See, it's about where you focus your core love or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those all come from that fallen, sinful nature, comes not from the Father but from the world, this fallen culture full of fallen human beings and the world and its desire pass away. But look, he doesn't leave us there. He lifts us right back up, but he who does the will of God lives forever. This is where Easter gets personal for each one of us. Now, when John says everything in the world here, he's talking about the spider of sin and how those webs get spun in human culture all over the place, but also how it shows up in our life Remember, sins are the webs, and sin is the spider from which they come. So we face the truth of our sins and our sin problem, and then we grace that problem by receiving the gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ, our substitute, our Savior, our advocate, and now we see how John says you got to replace that core sinful ego-driven self with the love of the Father, and the Father love, directing your life from God's Father love. He says, love not the world or the things in the world. The world here means that good creation that we talked about in our previous series, but that has been taken out of its context and distorted and perverted for self-interest. The flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, things in the world that God meant for good, but Then when we use them for indulgence and self-promotion, we find ourselves spinning webs and getting all tangled up in them. What are some of the gifts that humans tend to abuse? Beauty is one of them. Knowledge is another one. Sex is another one. Family is another one. Morality, prosperity. We talked about all of those in a previous worldview. I mean, a previous series on worldview. But here, John is summarizing that kind of thinking in the phrase, the pride of life. That's where human beings choose to align their attitudes and their actions, thinking that they can succeed without God. And he says, we're wrong. We're deceiving ourselves. We're in a lie. And if you want to step into the truth where freedom is, Don't believe for another moment that you being your own God is the key to success. It's the devil's temptation, actually. And it's actually the devil's great sin. The prophet Isaiah says this. He quoting Lucifer. Isaiah 14, verse 13. I will raise my throne above the stars of God i will sit enthroned on the mount on the utmost height verse 14 i will send above the tops of the clouds i will make myself like the most high what did the serpent say to in the temptation oh when you eat it you're going to be like god lucifer thought he was on his way up verse 15 says this but you are brought down to the realm of the dead the wages of sin is death and the depths of the pit. And that's where John just tags up again. He says, this world and its desires are passing away. That's where he gets this. He summarizes for us. He's bringing all that story to say, I'm seeing this in my life, in your life. And then he wants to say, so what's the way out of the pit? What's the way up? Well, it's all about love. Love, not the world, but let the love of the Father be in you, and in that love, guess what? The person who does the will of God is gonna be full of life for the rest of forever. That's where Easter invites us into the story. The word love is agape here. And it means the kind of love we see on the cross. And John says that that kind of love not only cleanses us by forgiving us the outside deeds that we commit that get on others and get on us when we do them and we need forgiveness, but it says that he goes on the inside and crucifies the spider. This is our story. Every time—see the cross? When Jesus was on the cross, all the sin— From all of the world, not just the sins, that's the sin list I mentioned earlier, all of the sins, all the webs and entanglements are on Christ, but the spider that spins them was there too. Every time we take communion, we remember this as believers. Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. And Paul says, in him the body of sin was destroyed. It was crushed. The spider has been dealt a mortal blow In his body, sin has lost power over us. And then Jesus said, and this is the blood of my covenant, the new covenant that will wash away all sin. Got you covered, want you free. And that's what John wants us to know. This is your Easter gift. That you can live free from guilt and shame, but also empowered for new possibilities. And that's coming a little bit later in the series. So I hope you'll join us on that. For now, let me end this way. In everybody's heart, somebody said this one time, in everybody's heart, there is a cross and there is a throne. Either Christ is on the cross and self is on the throne, or self is on the cross and Christ is on the throne. And the opportunity we have by faith in grace through trust is to say, Lord, I want to enthrone you, allow your death to become my death in Christ on the cross, which is why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, because Christ's death freed him up and then grants him victory. And that's helpful to me because I imagine this is true about you. Sometimes I can be my own worst enemy and I need help from the inside. And that's exactly where God says he'll do it. He'll bring it. He will, if I will face it, you want to know what's your next step today? Are you willing to face your need and say, Lord, it's me. I don't want to admit it, but I, I have sinned, and there have been sins in my life, and I'm tangled up in the dark. And, and so, I, I need to grace it It's not my works of righteousness that we do, but we receive the gift of God's grace by faith. It's a free gift, and then we replace it. Lord, may the love that put put you on the cross and raised you from the dead now come alive inside of me and start making room for your life to keep growing in me, in my relationships, in my future. That's called humbling yourself before God And the scripture's promise is, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for how you modeled for us in Christ, what it means to humble yourself as a human being before God. And then we got to watch you be raised, that God raised you up. And so, Lord, I'm just praying today for sisters and brothers, for moms and dads, for for people of faith and those who are maybe looking in and thinking about this for the very first time, that this would be a moment where each one of us can take the steps John has given us to own our issue, to own our problem, and then to invite you to forgive us, and then to welcome you to do your work within us. If this is your first step of that journey, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God, come in the flesh for me, for love of me, and that on the cross you did for me what I could never do for myself. And so I receive the gift of forgiveness for the sins I've committed and those I haven't yet, but for all of them in my life, forgive me. And then I invite you to come alive inside me by your Holy Spirit to come alive inside me and fill me so that your love could go to work in me and teach me how to let go of the things that are not worth my love and to hold on to those that will never let me go. We make our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.